on today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom. No apologies, just apologetics. It's episode 88. Turn it up! 88, right? I'm not doing a whole bunch of stuff today, people. We are just doing uh, an interview with Hillary Morgan Ferrer, who is awesome, and I have really enjoyed her stuff. And uh, I get to interview her. I reached out, and her assistant got back to me and was like, she would love to do this. So um, Hillary Morgan Ferrer has written Mama Bear Apologetics. Kaplow! Hey, give him a close-up on that, would you? Thank you, sir. Uh-huh. See that? <laughs> as soon as I saw this book, I, I uh, actually, I saw... I saw our sister Jessica wearing a, a T-shirt that said this on there, and then um, I was like, what is that? And so I got the, anyway, I tell the whole story in the interview, but I got the book, read it, and I'm like, yes, thank you. Somebody has done this and said this in a way that's articulated well for average Joe and average Josephine without theological training that can be passed along to our children. We're all about discipleship in the home here, guys. We want parents discipling children. We want husbands discipling wives. And then from there, it can spread out to the church. From there, it can spread out to the rest of the world. And this is a really good tool to put in your guys' hands to do that. So the first one is called Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. And then they actually just released... Uh, another one, which is the Mama, Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. And so it talks about these issues of gender and sexuality and romantic love and marriage and family and babies and all of this in a, in a way that uh, young people can understand, digest, and then replicate uh, verbally on their own. Because w- when you can say something in your own words, that's when you know you understand it. And so these are tools that we now can be put in our hands. So I had a great time having a conversation with Hillary Morgan Ferrer, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Let's get it. Hillary Morgan Ferrer, thank you so much for being here on Hungry for Wisdom. It really is actually a pleasure to have you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I uh, just a quick backstory for you. I think the the listeners probably know this from when we were saying, hey, guess who I'm talking to? But um, I was, so I'm, I'm a pastor, right? And I was walking around and one of my children's directors was, uh, she had this, this book and the shirt that matched it. And I'm like, Mama Bear Apologetics, what is, I said, that is the coolest name ever. And then just the fact (laughs) that she was the one wearing it, I'm like, okay, that gives it credibility to me because I trust her. So I looked into it, tore your book apart. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Somebody has done it. So anyway, I really appreciate the work you put in. So on behalf of all of us here at Grace and Truth, thanks for your work. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I want to get you talking about what kind of led to this. I heard um, in another Another interview that you gave, you told a story about uh, a young man that you know that basically turned away from the faith because somebody made a comparison to Santa Claus and mm-hmm. that was it. And so I'm, I'm curious yep. about what shallow roots look like. So what happened there? So it, it really, it, he didn't seem to have shallow roots. It, uh, it was the son of this woman that was in a, uh, was a Bible study with my parents. And so the pastor had asked my husband and I to come out to the church. It was back when we lived in the DFW area near my parents, uh, cause they were going through an apologetic series. And so just to kind of come out and help out because my husband is also an apologist. He works uh, with Frank Turk at cross examine ministries, but, um, she kind of got up and gave her testimony a little bit of what apologetics had meant to her. And it was basically, she had two sons. I can't remember if she homeschooled or not, uh, but they went through Awanas. They went through youth group. They were, you know, youth group leaders. Well, I think one of them even rededicated his life in college. And then his first job out of, out of college, he had a boss that was very, very antagonistic towards the Christian faith. And he said that, yeah, that Jesus is basically Santa Claus for adults. And something about that just, you know, made sense to him. 
And he came home and was like, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. If you look at our, our very early podcast, it would be, we have a two-parter with Jody Weiss. So it was, it was her, her son um, that we talked to her about what that looked like. And it was basically the shift from modernism to postmodernism that she had not been prepared for that um, all the questions that come up in postmodernism that really have no basis in absolute truth and just the concept that absolute truth can exist. And so she felt so blindsided by this, that she started, you know, Bible study for parents and she started tearing into, you know, what is this postmodernism? What's going on? What's going on in culture? And every time he came home, she would say, well, you know, ask me more questions. And then she would study while he went back out. And um, I, I'm not sure exactly where he is now, but I know it's someone who thought she did everything right. They'd done the church. They'd done the Awana. They did the youth group. They did the everything. Um, but she did not understand just how insidious a lot of the postmodernism thought is, and that basically once it starts burrowing its way and making its home into, uh, almost like the, 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 the soil of your mind garden, shall we say that it just breaks apart the ability to have that absolute truth. And since the Bible falls into the category of absolute truth, it just, it doesn't grow there anymore. And so, yeah, yeah. so that was kind of the story. That's boy, that's tragic. I really hope that, that, uh, that he came back around and had another realization, you know, of the truth he'd been taught. And that's probably important to specify when we're talking about you know, something, I mean, you, you're willing to call your, your ministry mama bear apologetics, right? But mom mm-hmm. and dad don't have the ability to guarantee results, right? We just did a uh, parenting conference yeah. here and our, our speaker, Scott Denny, he, uh, he made this great point. He said, he read out of Isaiah two, and he said, Israel had the perfect dad. And look how they rebelled, right? Mm-hmm. And so he says, Israel is yeah. my son. So when we say mama bear I mean, or- Adam and Eve, they had the like perfect, perfect, <laughs> right? like legit, you know, and he was still 0 for 2 on that one. So right? it's like, we can't judge ourselves if our kids walk away because it's like, even in the perfect environment with the perfect father, stuff still happens. Yeah, yeah. So then the, the goal then is not to guarantee results or to try and, try and um, you know, be God for our kids or those that we're discipling, but really just to, I mean, how would you explain it? Just to equip them, to influence- what we can. I mean, what's the main thrust to prepare them? Prepare. Uh, sorry, I cut you off there. No, no it's it, really it. to prepare them. Um, that uh, not that I'm saying God should have done this. I think this was all part of his plan. If we are going to go into, I don't know if you're familiar with Clay Jones uh, theodicy on the problem of evil and kind of what the, the history of this world is, but you know, God didn't come to Adam and Eve say, now there's going to be coming someone. He's going to be trying to trick you. And he's going to be trying to convince you that that's not what I said. So it's like, if maybe if they'd been prepared like that, it would have been different, but that wasn't part of God's plan uh, for redemption. But that's something that we as parents can do is, is we're not trying to tell them, think this, think this, think this, we're, we're trying to say, you know, maybe in the younger years, this is what we believe. And then as we get to maybe, you know, the, the later single digits, you know, the, the nine through 11, this is why we believe this. This is why it makes sense. This is how we believe this. This is the evidence for it. And these are some of the arguments that you're going to hear against this. Like I talked to people about the concept of what does it mean to, I mean, it's funny, this word didn't have such baggage back in the day, but the vaccinations, this idea of creating antibodies against ideas that uh, biologically speaking, what's happening, we'll say with normal vaccines, where um, every single type of virus has its own DNA, and it can spit that DNA into a cell, and then it replicates and makes more viruses. So but what viruses also have is they have kind of like a unique shaped protein, it's called protein spike, that's on the outside of their membrane, and you have different parts of your body that can come and they can recognize that shape. And the antibodies will recognize that shape, almost do like a handshake with it, find the one that matches. 
And then they'll say, hey, we've met this one before. Therefore, we need to make a lot more soldiers so that now if you get the real virus, one that does have its DNA, like for the vaccine, usually it wouldn't have DNA, but it would still recognize the protein spike. We recognize this thing that is not part of our body. And we have all the forces and the defenses to now when it comes for real to take it down. So that's kind of the concept of what we're doing with our kids is we're trying to show them these bad ideas, how... Um, how these ideas sometimes sound good in the short run, but when you take them into the long run, they're, they're bad ideas. And so preparing them for what people are going to say. I like what my pastor's wife used to say. She said, um, I don't want my kids hearing about anything that they haven't heard in my kitchen first. Yeah. Uh, and so that means, yes, I think it is. I'm like, man, that kitchen table is sacred time. If you're not making that kitchen table sacred time, I think you're missing out. But uh, so all the arguments that they might hear um, coming in the future, she wanted them to hear it from her first. Now, back when I was young, that would, wouldn't be till college or you, you might hear it. You know, e even sometimes in college, you were able to escape it. Now it's coming in through cartoons mm -hmm. and through uh, just the shows and through the music. And it's just so engulfing everything that's in culture that they our kids can't get around it and so people who think that they can parent the same way that they were parented it's a completely different world so we're preparing our kids for these ideas for these messages and kind of helping them chew through it before the real time comes when it's an actual antagonistic person or a college professor or even one of the really cool kids uh you know at school trying to convince you of something that uh, or trick you up with some question about Christianity that you hadn't considered before. Yeah, I, I read a really interesting book a couple of years ago called um, it was called Unbelievers. And the subtitle was uh, an in uh, a postmortem analysis of unbelief or something like that, or an autopsy mm. of unbelief. And uh, Alec Ryrie made this really interesting point. He said almost nobody is persuaded into a position of, of philosophy or theology. He says, we have things stirring in our heart and then somebody provides vocabulary for it, maybe a philosopher or something. Yes. And then we say, that's what uh -huh. I've been thinking. And that's when we change our mind. And, and he says, so the important yes. thing, one of his conclusions was the important thing for the people we're discipling, in this case, you know, we're talking about young people, is to provide a vocabulary for these questions they're going to have or the, the the problems they're going to feel and things like that. So I think, by the way, I think your book does mm -hmm. a really great job of equipping adults to do that for them. Thank you. Thank you. And I would say that, that what you just described is exactly what we see happening in deconstruction culture mm. right now. Can is, you define oh, that for us? So I have all these questions. I've had, had this oh, deconstruction. Yeah. So there's different ways that deconstruction, there's the philosophical term deconstruction, and then there's the way the populace is using the word deconstruction. Um, ironically, it's the same the same things going on, except for people are just catching on later. So classically, deconstruction is something that was in... Uh, post-structural, it's the purpose of taking something apart with no intention of putting it back together. You take it apart, you take apart, you know, an idea or a complete theology so that you can, and then you analyze all the individual parts and you say, see, this doesn't go together. This doesn't make sense. Um, and then you leave with the faith and crumbles. In fact, in, in traditional uh, Derrida style deconstruction, you're even going down to the concept that words don't have meaning, that we can't even understand what the original Bible writers meant. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward to now, and we have um, people using the word to just mean, oh, I have questions about my faith, or I had a really toxic upbringing in a hyper-fundamentalist church. I want to distinguish between hyper-fundamentalism and fundamentalism. Fundamentalism would be a set of tenets that I think that um, 
just in Christianity are very good, healthy tenets. Hyper-fundamentalism is when you add a whole bunch of other stuff, kind of like what we see in the Bill Gothard movement about, you know, what you can wear, how long your hair can be, you know, when you're allowed to move out of your parents' house. That's really not addressed, you know, as much specifically in scripture as a moral imperative. And so it's when people are trying to dismantle, I like what uh, Ginger Duggar Vuolo, she's one of the Duggar kids, she has a book out that's called, and she says disentangling. That's a better phrase for what someone's actually doing. Because when you're saying you're deconstructing, there's there's no sense that you're going to have any faith there afterwards if you're doing classic deconstruction. Right. I don't know, does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. That's different than renovation. You know, and when, uh, yes. when we were... We were out there at Chaz. I don't know if you remember when that was going on up here in Seattle, but they took over part oh, of this. Oh, golly, city. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we went out there and shared the gospel with all those domestic terrorists, which was kind of a wild experience. And I'm talking to one of these guys, and I said, you know, what's the plan here? And he said, look, we just need to clear the slate. It's going to be up to future generations to figure out what replaces it. And I'm like, yes. anybody can set something on fire. That's, that's nothing, right? It's uh -huh. hard to build something, but deconstruction is just demolition. Yeah. Yeah. I like what Chesterton says. He says, never tear down a fence unless you know why it was erected in the first place. And so that's kind of what we have is a bunch of people that it's like they think it's so easy to build. It's like they're they're just tearing down everywhere they can. They have no idea what it takes yeah. to build a civilization. And in the meantime, they're tearing down things that really have made civilization for thousands of years, like traditional family. It's like, OK, let's see you try to make a stable society without traditional family and go. <laughs> yeah. Which is and a they, great argument. They to teach don't your realize. History. I mean, how, how do you yeah. know that if you don't know history, right? Exactly. Let me, exactly. Let me go so, here yeah, for a second have, though. The, mm -hmm. the, um, the one of your, one of your opening chapters might even be the introduction. I don't remember. It, it says a mama bear doesn't necessarily need to be a mom. And that got me thinking mm -hmm. because, and you, you've talked about this in other interviews and stuff that, I mean, you don't have kids and yet you started mama bear apologetics, right? And it got me thinking yep. about this, this, um, the specific role of women in the Christian society these days in equipping children, because like, I spend a lot of time just trying mm -hmm. to get guys off of their butts, right? Like that's a big part of what pastors have to do these days. Like men Stop playing video games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's, there's a lot of that. Right. But if, if we're not careful, of course, we could swing the pendulum too far and be like, all right, men, you do mm -hmm. the work, but there's these, there's, yeah. a, a, you know, there's millions of women sitting there with all of these gifts and opportunities. So what are you trying to equip? It, it seems like you're trying to equip specifically women, mothers or aunts or teachers or grandmas or whatever. So what mm -hmm. is it that you want this group of women to know about how to equip kids? Mm -hmm. Well, first off, I, I kind of picked moms. Like I, it's not like I even picked moms. It's more like I just started having this burden on my heart. Number one. Uh, so I was introduced to women in apologetics, uh, which back when it was ISWA and I was like, why do we need a separate thing for women in apologetics? Why not just apologetics? And I discovered through this person who introduced me, she said, there's a large demographic of women who would not read something unless it's written by women for women. And I thought, wow, I was not aware of that. I've never had a hard time, you know, like I've learned from whoever, but uh, the, there's apparently apparently a large demographic uh, right there. And so my mind went immediately from who's teaching the women to wait, how are we getting the moms? Like to mm -hmm. me, the moms are the youth pastor in every single household. And it's not because dad doesn't do anything, but it's because from ages zero to like maybe around 16, if there's anything wrong mama's the one they will go to. You could have dad sitting in front of the TV, literally doing nothing. And when that kid can't get the cap 
off of his, you know, pe- peanut butter jar. He's going to go into mom who's sitting there shaving her legs in the bathtub to ask her to get it off <laughs> instead of the dad who's sitting in front of the TV. It's so for true. For whatever reason, right? I know moms are like, amen. For whatever reason, kids will go to mom first. Mom knows everything until they start getting into their mid-teens. And then it's only with specific topics, things like politics and maybe like economics and maybe some of the more theory kind of things like that. But since the moms are getting the questions first, I thought that needs to be a major place where we are putting our efforts into we are equipping moms. Now, anyone who has read my books knows that the books are good for men and women, Yeah, uh, that they're really good for, for anyone. But this is just a demographic that I felt like the Lord said, this is the people that I want you to go and try to reach. And anyone else who wants to come along, that's great. But um, I've given you this demographic for a purpose. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm really happy that you're doing that because, you know, when, um, when I, I feel like there are there's a lot of overemphasis on on um, very narrow slivers of big topics these days. That's kind of the thing, right? Like we're going to zero in on this and that's my thing. And and then I'm going to pigeonhole everything into that subject. And it can mm-hmm. it can be men's ministry or women's ministry or, or, you know, parenting or it could be politics. I mean, it could be whatever. But I just felt like yeah. you did a uh, you and, and the other contributors to the book did a good job of um, of saying, look, here's our lane and here's what we're doing. But it's also broadly usable. I found it to be a good tool. In fact, with our co-op that we're running out of the uh, out of the church here on Thursdays, they asked me to teach an apologetics course to the 12 to 16 year olds. And I put my mm-hmm. outline together on based on uh, John Frame's book on apologetics and yours. And so mm-hmm. it's like, oh. Yeah, this is extremely usable. So yeah, well done on that. Let me pick off some specific um, subjects because the way the book is set up, and I don't know if you need to say more about this, if I'm getting this wrong, the way it's set up is after some some introductory material, you basically go through worldviews that are like um, like modern day threats to a kid's understanding of the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. And some of those I, I think are maybe underemphasized or maybe just not even understood that this is a threat. So I wanted to draw attention to a couple yeah. of them, but as far as how the book is set up, is that a fair summary of it? Yeah. So we call those the ism chapters, you know, just because a lot of them are, you know, scientism, naturalism, feminism, all the isms. Um, but yeah, so we had kind of the introduction chapters on like, how are we going to be going about this? And then we have the ism chapters, which they are, they're not necessarily each of them different worldviews. Some of them are, but a lot, if you were to, except for the very first one, which we weren't quite sure where to put it, because it's, uh, which was the um, self-helpism, but basically from um, naturalism on, or uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like, if you were to take a history of thought in one gradually leading to the next, mm. uh, it, it really is a progression. And the, those were put together, except for towards the end, it's a little not as clear, but like probably chapters six through 11 are very much a progression of once this really gets embedded into the cultural psyche, then this is the next obvious thing. And then this is the next obvious thing. And then you get to the point of where you can't even call anything truth. And the only way to discover truth is how angry I feel about something or, you know, how strongly I feel about something. Um, And then we start going into, if it's all emotion-based, well, then now we have to go into the uh, uh, identity politics, which is where a lot of the feminism and Marxism and stuff come from. And then you start having things like pluralism coming in. Um, It it really is a progression of thought uh, and the natural progression that happens once you really have cut off the idea of, of ultimate truth and coming from God. Yeah. So to go with that, then your, your title for chapter six is my brain is trustworthy according to my brain, which I saw that and I'm like, (laughs) I mean, that says it all right there, you know? But you're, yes. you're hitting at this this larger point in that chapter that um, there's 
like false worldviews are really easy to adopt because like I don't I don't know exactly why it's so tricky. Maybe it's an individual thing for each person, but it's like there's there's this um this self-confirming loop of reasoning that we're taught, right? And and yeah. they deny it's happening the entire time it's happening, but it's like it's like guys, there's like you've closed off a system and cut out a lot of the information that's there. And so that's what naturalism yep. does. It's like you're only allowed to consider this box and if you ask why, yes. then you think the earth is flat, right? <laughs> so yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. It's like, yeah, you get straw man so fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's crazy. And it's like, no, you're literally doing to me what you're accusing me of doing to you. It's like this weird kind of gaslighting yeah. technique. It's like if my brain evolved, then it evolved to give me survival. It didn't evolve to give me truth. So why are you trusting truth claims from your brain that evolved to give you survival? It can't tell you that. And so it, it's kind of like this picture of someone sawing off the them that they're sitting on yeah uh, a lot of the naturalists want to be like well because my brain and my reason it's evolved to where yeah it's evolved for survival it is not evolved for truth this is kind of a weird ethereal question but what do you think the mechanism okay. is in in the developing brain that makes it so easy to sneak that past because these obvious logical contradictions like kids just mm -hmm. don't know and young adults right we don't we don't see them unless we're told and so is it is it yeah. because we're designed to kind of trust authority or i mean what is it Ooh, well I think ultimately what it can sometimes come down to, and I don't know if I'm oversimplifying this at this point, but I found that, uh, especially in apologetics, you get to a point where I can tell, can I talk through this with someone or is there no point? And one of the times when I discovered there's really not a point, there's someone who's having some kind of intellectual misunderstanding. And then there's people that are having a spiritual blindness. And I can very clearly sometimes tell you which one I'm talking to, okay. um, where if there is nothing that I'm saying, no amount of logic, no amount of reason, no amount of anything can quite penetrate to them, or they can't repeat back what I've been saying, or they're just not picking up how, hey, yeah, if your brain evolved, then it can't give you truth. It just gives you survival. And they just can't even fathom that you have a spiritual issue that's going on there that goes beyond just the intellectual issue. And I think some people end up beating their heads against a brick wall when they don't learn how to recognize when there's spiritual blindness versus uh, an intellectual, just um, something hasn't been explained well enough. Um, I, I would say I would also put it into something that I've been looking into called schemas. So schemas are a part of learning where you kind of learn basic things um, and then you add to your knowledge, it's called scaffolding in education, where you take what you already know and you add things to it, and then you keep adding to it. And anything that's different from what you've already learned, you don't know how to attach it to there. So you almost like ignore any kind of contrary evidence. You ignore anything that doesn't fit into your schema. And so the longer you go with this schema, if it's not a good schema, the, the longer you're unable to really um, pick apart your own worldview. And so I think this is where we are training kids to actually create within their schema that we're having to look at critical thinking. Is this a truth claim? How do I know this is true? What are the evidences for this being true? And then one of the most important things is what is the furthest logical conclusion mm. of this idea? And I think that's another place where things sound really good in the short run. And I think sometimes it could be an emotional reaction that we have to it. But they don't trace it to its furthest logical conclusion to show how, ooh, yeah, if I took that to its furthest logical conclusion, that really doesn't make sense. But no one's ever taught them how to go past just this initial experience or this initial um, analysis that they've made. Because the initial experience is ultimate in this worldview, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that yeah, is, yeah. you know, and if Your you argue with experience. that. <laughs> yeah, really. And so, yeah. I mean, I want to, 
I want to get you to define postmodernism because we started out talking about it and I thought, okay, we need to dig define into postmodernism. You're so cute. <laughs> you can't define <laughs> right. postmodernism. And that's what we call a logical contradiction, kids. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but there's, we, we do go through phases of cultural philosophy, right? So there was, yeah. so modernism was big in, I don't know what, like the 50s is, you know, is that's kind of what was going on there. And it's all in the universities, but, you know, yeah, but, it's on the scientific revolution. And it's really where they, they, they thought, Everything that we can know can be uh, arrived at if we pull our collective reasoning that everybody's, you know, kind of created the same. If if we all think rightly and we all study this in the same way, we're all going to come to the same conclusion. And that turned into the uh, the scientific method. But then they discovered, hey, everybody's still fighting over all these different theories, even though we're supposed to be able to come to this like cohesive conclusion, sing kumbaya, and yay, we've discovered ultimate truth. Then when they didn't have that, so this would be the modernism, i.e. the naturalism chapter, when they realized that that wasn't impossible, it was like that bubble got popped. And I don't know if you've ever had it where you had your hopes all in something. And the more your hope was in something, and when you find that it doesn't work, you don't just say, well, it needs a, a little bit of a... Uh, makeover, you're like, I reject that altogether. So this idea of rejecting it altogether, we used to believe that we're all going to come to the same conclusion, all come to the same objective truth. Well, now I'm going to reject that conclusion completely and say either there is no objective truth, or if there is, there's no way to know it for sure, or to know who's the one who decides on what's objective truth. And really, that's where you get into the postmodernism is where nobody has the authority to really say what's true. And if you try to say something's true for everybody, well, that's oppressive, that's powerful. And really all the other isms that you have coming after that are because we have erased the concept of there being any outside of outside authority. And so once you get outside of authority, you fill it with yourself. Once you fill it with yourself and you realize, well, that's still people butting heads, then you start looking to power dynamics, which is where we start seeing the feminism and the Marxism starting to come in. All right. So let me back up a little bit. We've got we've got Second Corinthians uh, 10, which where, where Paul talks about, hey, these guys, they measure themselves by themselves and they come away feeling pretty mm -hmm. good because what else are you going to do? Right. <laughs> like you, you're always going to skew that so that you come out on top there. Modernism was oh, like yeah. oh, the yeah. expert uh, worldview at that. It was like the self is ultimate and, you know, I'll measure everything else against me. I'm it, it's basically like I'm God. I don't think any of them really put it that way, but it's pretty much what it was. Right. And so then when that doesn't work, you wind up with postmodernism which is nothing is ultimate there's no ultimate truth there's no ultimate claims there's everything is kind of relative in this non-mathematical sense it's just sort of like what is for you is for you i actually you know i mean i'm going to move into this how we're kind of past postmodernism now but like it's still the vestiges of it are still there i mean when was the last time you had oh, somebody yeah. say to you like you know in an abortion conversation or something well hey what's right for you may not be right for her or something like that yeah that's what that speak is speak your truth that's what yeah. you're here speak your truth that's you know very very much routed and, and grounded in postmodernism of like you know my truth is is my truth your truth is your truth who's to say whose truth is real so you and know the your pluralism point. let's all sing kubaya and have our own truths together and everything will be great and it's not <laughs> yeah and you said that one of the most important things which it, i totally agree with is to teach people to think to the logical extreme of this right which the logical extreme yes. of this is obviously absurd you can't have you can't have opposites mm -hmm. be true you know on on almost anything tangible in life right it doesn't work with gravity yeah. you can't get somebody to the moon you can't balance your bank account it, it's obviously absurd and yet we just grab yeah. onto the whole thing because it because then moral accountability evaporates and lordship mm -hmm. evaporates. I mean, it really frees us up to do a lot of stuff. It's that old, you know, Aldous Huxley thing. Like we wanted God to not exist because then we could sleep with who we wanted. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been reading through this book. It's a it's a primer on queer theory from original original sources, you know, people mm. who are proponents of it. And what I'm finding is they're really having a problem. If you were to break it down into two things, I think one of them would just be like spiritually. I think there's a problem of shame that's going on there that they're trying to get rid of. We'll, we'll push that one aside right now. But the other one is just the basic logical tenet of a can never equal non-A. Are you familiar with that tenet mm-hmm. in yep. logic? Mm-hmm. So it's, there's the, the law of identity that says A equals A, but then there's the, the other law would say A cannot equal non-A. This idea, so like an apple cannot be an apple and not an apple in the same way and in the same sense. And so, but what they're having though, is that idea of A does not equal non-A or A can never equal non-A is that's exclusive and that's uh, they want to be inclusive. And so this idea of trying to make these two separate things, if we define one of them by the other, that itself is exclusionary and that's oppressive to people. And they're trying to get around this concept that two different things can't be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, I don't know what just got me on that, but something you said <laughs> reminded me of that no, when I, mean, I was reading this week. But- yeah, where I want to go with this, though, is that the um, is what comes next, because we're in the middle of it, but it seems like we haven't oh. figured out what to call it yet. Right. So you suggest that um, that now the ultimate reality, if we could talk in such terms, is um, the what did I say? The, the strength of emotion and personal conviction is the way that you put it. Right. Yeah. So do we yeah. has anybody developed a term for for the cultural philosophy that we're in now post postmodernism? So. Uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pleckrose, who wrote criti- uh, Cynical Theories, they have it as applied postmodernism. It's where it's like postmodernism, as we talked about, how it just doesn't work in the real world. Well, now we're in that experimental phase where we're trying to make it work in the real world. So they've called it um, uh, they've called it uh, applied postmodernism. I've had heard some other people call it like um, uh, metamodernism, where um, oh. I'm not sure I fully understand their meaning behind that, but I've, I've heard that one, but, um, but the applied postmodernism is just, you know, uh, seems, seems to kind of be the experimental phase that we're in right now. <laughs> Let, let's try to make this, uh, you know, this is where you see people that are fighting over the, are you familiar with the PEMDAS battle? Yeah. yeah. Maybe you know, like in the, you know, please excuse my dear aunt Sally. That's what I learned it as, you know, the order that you do things in, in mathematics, well, they're trying to say, well, that's exclusive. You know, why is it this way? Why can't it be another way? And I'm like, oh my gosh, if we get rid of this, we're going to have to rewrite all the mathematics yeah, that we've done in, for NASA in up until State. now. Yeah. And they've pretty much done it in Washington state. So that's, that's what's uh, happening in the, uh, in the school systems now, but that, I mean, I yeah, laugh so a that's little bit. Them trying to apply that postmodernism. And mm-hmm. I don't know that, I don't know how the, the, the fact that they're in this far, this would be the spiritual blindness that they can't see that this isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I chuckled a little bit when you said applied, uh, applied postmodernism, because, you know, to me, what that sounds like is um, behold your God, right? Like you, you just got mm. what you wanted. And it's freaking yeah. horrifying, <laughs> right? So and, and we're God just gonna gave keep on them doing. over to that's the phrase from Romans. It's like when people think of God's wrath as hellfire and brimstone. Mm-mm, I was always brought up to know God's wrath is when God says, and God gave them over to basically, yep. Yep. you know, that's what he does. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. And he's like, let's see how this works. Yeah, that's that C.S. Lewis line, right? The Christianity is when we look at the Lord and say, thy will be done. And, and judgment is when he looks mm. at us and says, thy will be done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So then does, is there any projection as to where this goes from here? Cause I mean, it's really easy to picture just a full scale societal breakdown in a Mad Max situation, but I mean, yeah. what's next? Um, so I can tell you what I personally think is next, um, that, uh, it's going to go from being in the realm of ideas and it's going to go back to hyper spirituality. 
Uh, and I'll tell you why is because I believe that the stuff that's coming in through sexuality, this is a very fundamental aspect of who God created us as humans. And once we start disagreeing on what the definition of human is, um, I think that it's just this giant Trojan horse for a lot of, um, how would I say? So like the, uh, a lot of the Western world has had the luxury of not having to deal with very overt spiritual warfare. And that's something that because we've stopped believing in it, I think a lot of the stuff has stopped going on because there's no sense in making your presence known when everybody thinks you don't exist versus if you were to go on a, um, on a, uh, mission trip to somewhere like Haiti. Like I remember we had missionaries uh, when I was growing up going to Haiti and like all the voodoo doctors and the witch doctors and stuff like that. It was very, very real. Um, I think a lot of the gender ideology stuff is basically this big Trojan horse with a bunch of demonic stuff coming in. And I think we're going to start seeing a rise in actual demonic activity. And we are seeing that, especially in the sense of number one, churches starting to dabble in occult practices mm -hmm. uh number two uh kids starting to really dabble in occult practices stuff like wicca is on the rise if you go to um it's very common to see ouija boards in places like michael's <laughs> now there's even a holy spirit board on amazon where you're guaranteed not to speak to any bad spirits but you're guaranteed to speak to only good spirits it's a ouija board for christians and another way to pray uh, my husband didn't believe me. We were talking in bed the other night. I was like, no, I'm going to show you. It's yeah. there. Good and thing so, Satan um, never masquerades as an angel of light. Otherwise, we'd be I in know, really deceptive right? territory there. <laughs> wow. So I think we're already seeing that going on. I have a friend of mine who uh, was an apologist up at Berkeley and Stanford. And I, I will never forget the thing that she said to me. She's like, you know, I went in there thinking I was going to be doing apologetics. She's like, I never thought I would have to do as much deliverance ministry as I do. Yeah. Um, and so she was dealing with actual demonic stuff. And so, uh, you know, we act like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's over in other places. I think we're going to start seeing a rise in that. And I think we are seeing a rise in that specifically with some of the more extreme versions of mental health. We're labeling, we're labeling a lot of it as mental health. And some of them might be legitimate mental health things, but I think they're almost indistinguishable from uh, sometimes um, just oppression, uh, spiritual yeah, totally oppression. Agreed. So I know that Sounds a little woo-woo there. I know some people might think, you know, aren't you apologists? You're not supposed to be talking about spiritual warfare. And I'm like, mm -mm, you, it, this is yeah. coming there, sweet pea. It's coming. What do you, what do you think apologetics is? <laughs> it's like it's a, it's a battle for the truth. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the third world and the, you know, the stuff that I've seen in, in the birthplaces of voodoo and so on is mm -hmm. it, it's like you say, it's more overt. It's maybe a little more um, what we would consider to be exotic and weird, but it's the same look in somebody's mm -hmm. eye when you got you know yep. a, a you know a person here who says that they're struggling with a mental health issue but in reality you know not that those things don't exist but it's like let's see how they respond to the yeah. gospel and when you put the gospel out there and you just see the foaming and the mm -hmm. spitting and it's like man i've seen this before just because you speak english doesn't mean this is a different thing there was a woman's child that i knew that she was saying like i can't say the name jesus around him he 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 makes me spell it out and so she was like i just want you to talk to him at some point it was you know kind of a friend of the family so I was talking to him and we were just having fun. We were playing games and I started talking about God and I kid you not, he curled up into the fetal position and started rocking. He was eight oh, years old. Poor kid. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I mean, they come from what's supposedly a Christian family, but um, right. yeah, there's, there's a, there's a passage in Rome, uh, not Romans in revelation where it talks about Babylon, where it says it's a haunt for every kind of jackal and unclean spirit. And I remember thinking, you know what? I'm, 
starting to think that Babylon isn't necessarily one place. It's almost like where's the most powerful place in the world and that's where it's going to be. And for a long time, that's been American. I think we are going to start seeing that kind of cropping up here because we've seen it happen in, in every other, I guess, fallen civilization. Yeah. But almost every single one of them was preceded by a sexual revolution. Of some totally sort. true. Yeah. I, I've seen a big uptick in Gaia worship and then also um, mm. an, an interest, uh, a growing interest in Druids and Druidry and things like that. And all yep. of them have sacrificial rituals and they also have sexual mm -hmm. rites. Right. The sexual rituals. Yep. And so it's like, yeah, man, this is this is all of a piece. So, yeah, you can sound yep. as weird as you want on and this podcast. More I'm totally with you. I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> OK, good. Yeah. No, just the, the amount that it's becoming mainstream. And I'll recommend a colleague of mine, Krista Bontrager. She's very we did an interview on Mama Bear that's going to be coming out um, probably probably in the next couple of weeks uh, with how much occult stuff has been picking up among youth. But she's got a lot of stuff on her YouTube channel and podcast about what she's observed with this. She's very, very knowledgeable about it. Great. Okay. Let me shift gears then for a second. I want to get you talking about linguistic theft. I think this yes. is so important. And I think this is at the foundation of so much somebody, I don't know who it was, but I heard him say once that uh, he who writes the dictionary determines the field of battle. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and you, you handled that so well. So can you define linguistic theft, why it's important? How do you guys approach that? Yes. So linguistic theft is the purposeful hijacking of language, changing its definition, and then putting it forward as a tool of propaganda. So it's much more sinister than just uh, the evolution of language, which we might see is called like semantic shift or semantic drift. Things like the word silly, you know, back in the Pride and Prejudice time, you didn't have two brain cells to rub together. And now it just means like making a funny face. It's like there was no agenda uh, uh, in, in that change of word. But the definition of love and the definition of hate and the definition of tolerance, the definition of bullying, the definition of healthcare, harm, flourishing, all these things uh, are Immune. the definition is being changed. And then they're putting it back. And this is where I think a lot of the Christian kids are having a really hard time is once they've been convinced that this is the definition of love, then they have it placed in their face. So why aren't you loving like Jesus loved? Mm -hmm. And they don't know to go back. Wait, are we working with the same definition here? It's like all they know is they're being told I'm that I, I'm being unloving. Jesus said love and they'll know me by my love. Therefore, I need to change in order to show Jesus. And so it, it really is, like you said, who controls the, the, the words, you know, controls the conversation. Or I like uh, I haven't been able to verify that this is Voltaire. I think this is Voltaire. It is uh, it, if you wish to converse with me first, define your terms. Um, cause you'd be surprised at how often, like my husband and I discovered this early in marriage, how often we would be having like two hour long discussions only to find out that we totally agreed on everything. Yeah. We were just talking about it differently. Yeah. Um, and so I think people have that. So just learning how to define your terms and knowing, uh, I, I recommend for parents when I give my linguistic theft talk at different churches and stuff that they have a buzzwords board next to their TV or next to their radio. Of these are some of the words to look out for of, hey, when you hear this, when you hear the word injustice, what are they meaning? Hmm. What's what, what actually happened? There? Did they give us any details or did they just say injustice has occurred? How do we know injustice has occurred? Like, how do they define that? So just like these words to listen for, um, because I really think it is taking advantage of the Imago day that we have, that there's certain concepts that we are, as Christians have, and just as humans have built into our hearts, the concept of love and hate injustice and injustice, we serve a God who is all about justice. Um, and so it's kind of taking that idea that we're already agreed with these things, but if we change the definition, 
then we can make someone agree with a different agenda. And this actually goes back to, I mean, I'm sure it goes back further than this, but Saul Alinsky, who wrote the book Rules for Radicals, he has this, this rule that he says in there. One of them is you do what you can with what you have and you clothe it in moral garments because all effective means require the passport of morality, which means that, uh, and he defines his goal at the beginning of the book. My goal is to get power, uh, how to get power and how to use it. And the way to do that is you do what you, you can. You do what you can with what you have and you clothe it moral garments because all effective means require the passport of morality. They have to think this is the right thing to do. So this is very, very much just built into our our cultural conversation right now. Yeah. So let me let me put a, uh, we'll put something in the lab here. I'll give you a scenario and then maybe you can um, analyze how, how we can walk out of that when we find ourselves in this. So there was a okay. um, real life situation. There was a, a a couple of parents, Christian parents, and they had a teenage son who was wanting to experiment with his sexuality. And mm-hmm. they they were talking to him and said, look, here's you know, here's how we're going to guide you out of this. From what I can tell, did a phenomenal job maintaining grace and truth and all of that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. The son said, why do you guys hate me? And they said, we don't hate you. We love you. We sacrifice for you. We've got this house. We give up this for you. Like we do everything for you. We don't hate you. We love you. And he said, no, if you love me, you would affirm me. The fact that you're not affirming me means you hate me. So their definition of love was quite literally mm-hmm. the same as his definition of hate. And so they yeah. were they were locked in in different dictionaries there. So how do you work out of something like that in, in a situation that's heated? Um, I think is when you can get them down to a definition that they agree with. If, like in this case, if you aff- uh, if you love me, you would affirm me. You can always find another example of where it would be clearly wrong to affirm someone. It's you know, I, I'd say one of the classic ones would be, um, you know, that you have someone who's who's anorexic or bulimic who thinks they're fat. And do you think it would be the most loving thing for us to affirm them? Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, you could you you could lose lose a few pounds. Or do you think it would be more loving to say, no, you, we really need to get some more weight on you. Now, something like that is going to be different because he'll say, well, this is a health, this is a health thing. Then you can say, well, you're, you're not affirming my definition of love. Does that mean you hate me too? Oh, golly. I'd hate to think that we both hate each other because you can turn it into him hating you as much as you hating him. Um, and just the make logical him, conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. What's the logical conclusion? It's like, find other things that he would not affirm. And ask if that means he hates them. Did, does this mean that you hate all Christians? Does it mean, what, what, you know, what about your cousin who you love, but she doesn't agree with this? Do you hate her too? Um, just, they have to snap out of this idea of this is the definition, start to question that definition by showing how it doesn't work. Again, this would be the going to the furthest logical conclusion where they haven't really applied this rule, i.e. the rule, if you, do, if you don't affirm, then you hate. They haven't applied that rule to other situations. So you have mm-hmm. to show them all the other situations where that doesn't work. Okay. All right. Great. That was super. I was so clear when you say it. All right. So then <laughs> another, another scenario, then um, I've noticed this, this trend, especially among uh, I'm ballparking it here. Let's say 25 and under in, in this generation. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, where the, they're, they're, their weaknesses become their cultural currency. And so they're celebrated by Mm. what they struggle with. And so it's like, I've got depression, I've got anxiety, I'm medicated for this, I've got cut marks on my arm. And that becomes um, your, sometimes it's victim status or whatever it is, right? But Mm -hmm. those are your intersectionality points. And you can, you Mm -hmm. can participate in a conversation about justice and fairness, if you are suffering from a lack of, of one of those. So you gotta, you gotta make your case for it. So, um, 
actually, here's a weird story for you. I was talking to a kid at a gay pride parade. We went there to share the gospel. And he said, uh, I think I've told the story on this podcast before, but um, he said, yeah, I was, I was in youth group and this was four or five years ago for him. He said, I was in youth group at this church. We went to a retreat and they found out that I'm same sex attracted. And so the, the youth pastor beat me with a bag full of Bibles. And I'm thinking, what? I know that youth pastor. I know that church. No, it didn't happen. Right. And I'm like, why would you like Bibles don't even come in bags. They come in boxes. (laughs) What's going on here? That's just bad for the pages. I don't know. Right. Exactly. Those things are expensive. You're not going to use them like that. So I I was thinking Mm -hmm. like, what's going on here? And it it clicked with me that like he he has to have an origin story that involves victimhood in order to have status in this community. So when somebody's so here's the question then. When somebody, uh, when when the things that we seek to heal people from and to, to get them victory over in Christ through the gospel, when those are the things that they mm-hmm. have to hang on to, or else they combust and they they no longer matter as people, where do you go there? Because that seems to be a bit of an impasse. So that's interesting that you bring that up. Let me see if I have the notes on my desk because this is something I actually talked about. I might have already tossed them um, at a at a talk that I did. Just literally, ah, here we go. Um, like a couple weeks ago. Um, let me see if it has, um, well, I, I think I remember the name of it. So there is something called strangler vines, strangler, um, vines? So str- strangler vines. So strangler vines are really interesting, um, in the sense that they start wrapping themselves around a tree, um, and they start growing with the tree. Uh, but what they do is it's actually a parasite that's eating the tree from the outside in. But what you are, what you end up with is something that looks exactly like the original tree, but it's hollow on the inside. And so they have all these different places. So if you look up strangler vines and you look up different places and you can, they've got somewhere you can like, it looks like a tree and then you look up through it and you can see it's just completely hollow. Or you'll see some of these, uh, really almost kind of beautiful, but, um, in a, in a real, not dark, but, a uh, sort of creepy kind of way where it's like, uh, you know, homes that have these vines that are growing over them, the kind of thing that you'd see in like Lord of the Rings or something like yeah. that. Um, this is, I, th- I think is essentially what we have going on is we have these ideologies that are taking over something that's healthy and then it's eating it from the inside out. So I, I like showing the, the tree with the strangler vine and then what it ends up being. I, I said, how much do you love the tree if you're advocating for the strangler vine? Do you think the strangler vine has every right to be here as much as the tree? Uh, do you think the tree is all excited about the diversity of the strangler vine with the tree? It's like, this is what is destroying it. And it's going to eat it from the inside until it doesn't exist anymore where, what is the loving thing to do for the tree? And the loving thing is to try to separate it from those strangler vines, because those are the things that are holding it captive and eating it from the inside. Now I would, I would bring this back to a spiritual analogy where people think that this is a sort of grafting in kind of like scripture talks about, like you are grafted into the true vine. So you can be grafting into the absolute wrong vine, one that is going to destroy you. So I think sometimes just bringing up the category, and this is something that I'm very, very, a big advocate for, for especially working with uh, youth is to give them categories that they haven't considered that now they can place this new piece of knowledge in. So this category is something that looks safe, but really destroys from the inside out. And we can see it with our eyes happening here and what it does to that tree. Now I'm going to compare that to what if I see something that's destroying someone, 
is the loving thing to leave that there or to try to separate them from it and just say, even if you don't agree, can you understand that this is what I'm trying to do? And can you understand that it would be a loving motivation for me to try to do this? But um, this is where um, there's like, um, I love how God created nature with these little pieces. There's so many just excuse me, analogies you can take from nature that really show what's going on in the spiritual realm. If you just keep your eyes open. I think sometimes something like that, it gets past what's called watchful dragons. Do you know what I mean when I say watchful dragons? No. So, um, there is a, um, I can't remember if it was a talk that if I named the talk or if there was like a essay called this, but it comes from CS Lewis talking about the people have watchful dragons. It's this idea of they've been so, um, hit with the gospel that they're always waiting to be converted. Someone's trying to get them, you know, another notch on their belt in evangelism. So if you say anything that sounds like I'm trying to convert you all of a sudden that watchful dragon comes up and it's like, ha, I'm not going to listen to anything you say, but you start telling them a story and that little watchful dragon does this. Ooh, tell me more. And you put it into the realm of art and you put it into the realm of analogy and you put it into the realm of story. There, that's why there's a, a really great podcast out. I think we did a podcast on it. It was based on an article called, I was an atheist until I read Lord of the Rings, where oh. their watchful dragon was able to calm down as they watched Lord of the Rings. And they discovered, wow, there's a lot of truth in here that I can't get from my worldview. Where is this coming from? Why am I resonating with this so much? Uh, so sometimes when someone is so focused on this ideology, finding something else, and I think this, in this particular case, strangler vines are just fascinating to look at, can take them out of that ideology and start coming up with the category of things that look benign or can even look beautiful that are actually harmful. Well, and now that you say that, I mean, that was one of Jesus' go-to moves, right? He would he would mm -hmm. uh, take an analogy from nature. It was usually either family or nature or, just, you know, some societal Farming. relationship. Or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he would he would have a, have an on-ramp there to, to the kingdom of God. So yeah, that, that makes perfect yeah. sense. Now you're to go with that. Then speaking of maybe the ultimate strangler vine, um, you had a chapter on Marxism, which when yes. I saw that, I was like, this woman's a boss. Thank you so much. Because it, <laughs> like, there are so many things that get, that get slammed into the realm of politics. And then it's like, Hey, mm -hmm. no politics from the pulpit, bro. And so it's mm -hmm. like the, so the, the, the evil worldviews, whatever they are, they can just go ahead and kick anything out of out of the Christian's discussion bank by just saying it's political. And so, you know, now we're not yeah. allowed to talk about saving babies because that's a politics issue. Now we're not that's allowed political, to talk about, yeah. Yeah, about economic models and so on. But there's something about Marxism in particular that is so necessarily anti-God and anti-Christ that it's like, I was really glad to see that it made the cut. So can you just make the connection for us as to why a, a political economic model made it into a book about apologetics? Why is it so important? Uh, well, I can tell you that it was not in the original outline. Um, the We had to replace one chapter and the, the chapter that ended up getting replaced was individualism, um, which is interesting because Marxism is almost kind of the opposite of that. It became clear, especially as we were studying feminism and then some forms of progressive Christianity and identity politics, that there was no way that we could not address Marxism because basically that was the, the kernel of the idea that everything else comes from. Now, like uh, Neil Shenvey and um, I can't remember his, Pat Sawyer just came out with a book called um, Critical Critical Theories. In a, I, can't, I can't remember the exact, anyway, they just came out with a great book. Um, and they, they talk about the danger of lumping everything into the, the Marxism or the socialism or the uh, critical theory or the social justice lumping in it to, uh, 
all those together, you know, under one banner word, which is, of course, we don't want to do that. So what we want to do is we want to discuss the ideas and learn how to recognize the ideas. And so the ideas within Marxism, uh, they do count as a complete worldview. In fact, if you see uh, Jeff, um, Jeff Myers from Summit Ministries has very large volumes of on uh, comparative world worldviews and Marxism is one of them. A worldview is something that claims to make sense out of everything. So uh, ironically, worldview and religion are kind of synonymous in that sense, that it claims to make sense out of everything. So the thing okay, that that's, that's really important for the listeners to hear. So a worldview is something yes. that it's a system of thought that claims to make sense out of everything. Out of everything. So Love our it. Christian worldview really does make sense out of everything when we start an original, good original creation the fall and basically how everything's tore up since then. And then the promise of redemption, we can fit every part of our lived experience into those categories. Um, so within Marxism, it's going to be all about who is the oppressed and who is the oppressor, because he literally says at the beginning of the communist manifesto that the, uh, the history of all hitherto societies is the history of class struggle. Now, what he was meaning back then was class struggle in terms of economics, who owned the businesses and who had the businesses. What the class struggle is that we have going on now is the idea of who has the social power and who doesn't have the social power or who has injustice being perpetrated against them and who is withholding justice. And we can explain everything in terms of that. So like just as much as the Christians want to explain everything's in terms of that's an example of sin. That's an example of the fall versus this good thing over here. This is an example of good, good creation, the way something was created to be. And, uh, you know, we have a longing for this stuff in eternity. And that explains uh, where, where we're destined to go, what that future redemption looks like. As much as we can explain everything in Christian terms, the uh, person who has more of the neo-Marxist idea can explain everything into terms of that person had a hard time because the environment they were in and the injustices perpetrated against them. That person has had an easy time. Therefore, they've risen to the top. They've obviously perpetrated injustice. They've been the oppressor. They must be oppressing this person. This person needs to be freed from that. Everything is explained in these phrases. And that's also where we get the intersectionality is who exactly is oppressing who. And instead of going back to the original categories that really Christ does have in the Bible, which is the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the fatherless, that these are the ones that we need to advocate for. They have placed it in the realm of skin color, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, uh, sex, religion, all these different things. Um, and so everything that you hear is people trying to explain who has the power and who doesn't have the power and how we need to flip that power so that the have nots have power finally. Yeah. And that, and that how we flip it is that's their, their version of the gospel, right? Because that's the solution mm -hmm. to it. I remember reading, yes, uh, that is the James, solution. James Cohn's book. The first time I read one of his books, I was like, let's just see what the big deal is, right? It, he's kind of seen as, you know, the, 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 thought founder or the one of the four thinkers of uh, critical race theory. Okay. So, you know, let, let's go and read one of Cohen's books. So I read a couple of them, but the first one, I'm just like, this is the most blatantly evil thing I've ever heard because he, he lays out the problem exactly as you just did. And with him specifically, it's in terms of race and specifically white versus black. Right. And so mm -hmm. then I'm like, all right, so what's your solution? And his solution is take, take the power by force. And once those tables are turned, you'll have justice. And I'm like, that is that not the most obvious road to bloodshed and maybe maybe that's what he wants i don't know but it's just like you're pretty sure history is replete dude. of this this is how you get into this revenge cycle of yes. you know this person like you know killed the person in my clan so therefore we need to kill two people in their clan therefore they need to kill four people in our clan it's like that's the cycle that we've seen it, it never ends 
Um, and uh, that's why we have laws in the Old Testament exactly how much retribution can be taken um, so that you don't have this spiral out of control. Yeah, and I think that right there, what you just put your finger on, is exactly what makes Marxism necessarily anti-gospel, which is even even if we were to agree about the problem, which I'm we I don't think we can get there from a biblical worldview, but let's let's just go there mm-hmm. for a second because oppression does exist. All right, we'll meet them over there. Yeah. So if if we can agree about the problem, the the solution to it would be 180 degrees opposite of anything that Jesus would prescribe or endorse. Right. So it is it, it, yeah. it these things can't be married up at least not consistently. Yeah, I think we actually can agree on the problem a lot more than we think we do. Um, And that's, I think, one of the ways, uh, especially I know you'd wanted me to talk about the war technique a little bit. I think that's actually one of the ways that we can have really fruitful, productive um, dialogue is to find the things that we agree on. And and I think specifically, a lot of times we agree on some of the basic parts of the problem. It's the solutions to the problem that we disagree on. Yeah. Okay. so run us through the roar method real quick then. Because yeah, that, so actually that methods... was listed as my first, uh, my first question here. Yeah. And I completely blew over it because we started talking postmodernism and I was like, oh, let's I know, right? <laughs> so much more fun. Yeah. So the Roar method, uh, we wanted to have a way that not only did we introduce each one of the ism chapters starts out with kind of a brief history of the ism. This is what it is, like a real kind of concise um, explanation, some examples from history. And then how would we talk about this through our kids? So first off is recognizing the message, recognizing the message. You have to do like, say for Marxism, that everything comes down to power and oppression. That is, I mean, like in, what do they say? This is me in a nutshell. Uh, that's Marxism in a nutshell is, is this concept of power and oppression. Uh, and now the, the O for R-O-A-R stands for, I added a word and I wish I had it the original, but offer objective discernment. So first off, we're offering discernment. We're not just going and loudly proclaiming, here's what's wrong with everything because um, I say that can kind of make you the stench of self-righteousness and rather than the aroma of Christ. Yeah. Um, but just the idea of offering, you know, hey, let me look at some of these things. And people think that discernment, when you're offering discernment, that you're only addressing what's wrong. But I think the most critical part, the two most critical parts of offering discernment, number one, are seeing things correctly. Um, because you can offer discernment. My, I, the example I always give is the band ACDC where, you know, all the parents are like, oh, it means antichrist devil's children. And it's like, no, they got it on the back of a toaster. It stands for alternating current, direct yeah, current. It's on the back of literally every appliance that you have. And they just thought it sounded cool. Yeah. But, their song, um, their, their, band, their uh, flagship song is called Thunderstruck. They're, they're not scholars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you need to see it objectively first uh, before you try to uh, dis- disarm it. But um, you need to look at what, what do we agree with first? So in all the O sections, we look at what are the truths that, that someone who agrees with this message are actually getting right. Where can we agree? Where can we stand arm in arm? And then we start doing this more the discernment of saying, okay, what are some of the lies we see, we see sneaking in? Because there is a passage and I have it in my presentation. I can never tell you where things are, but um, it talks about discernment is being able to tr- uh, approve what is true and excellent. And so part of that discernment is looking at what is true and excellent, praiseworthy, what is right. We got to do that first before we start saying, okay, here's where the lies snuck in. So then you go to the, where the lies have snuck in. Now we're going to go to argue for a healthier approach and argue for a healthier approach. We're going to say, okay, what were the things that we originally agreed upon? Now we're going to take these, since we already know we agree on these things. And here's how the Bible addresses it better than the way where all the lies snuck in. And so that's, where arguing for a healthier approach for the issue that we all recognize. And then R stands for reinforce through discussion, discipleship, and prayer. 
And this would be specifically what you do with your kids, where you talk through these things, you help them pick it apart. And I, t I tell you, you know, some of the best times you can do this is sitting and watching TV, especially nowadays that you can put TV on pause to where you catch things as they're going. And like Amy, one of my, uh, one of my other mama bears, it's like her kids will put stuff on pause and be like, Hey mom, come listen to this and call her in there. So they can, you know, uh, pick it apart. And they're like, did you see that? Did you see that? Or see if yeah. she notices the same thing they, they noticed. Um, and it almost becomes a game. There, there was another mama bear who wrote me that said that she would, her like six year old, they'd be in a movie theater and all of a sudden her six year old would yell out bad worldview. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I would love to be in that movie theater. That's amazing. So it's like teaching them how to do it on their own through discussion, discipleship. We're going to be acting through it. Sometimes we have the thinkers and then we have the doers. The doers really need to see practical examples of this truth. Uh, and then prayer, as you and I talked about earlier, that there are sometimes when there's just spiritual blindness going on and there's a spiritual, there is a spiritual barrier that, that is there and we need to pray through that. You can't argue through that. So I reinforce through discussion, discipleship, and prayer. So that's recognize the message, offer objective discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce through discussion, discipleship, and prayer. Yeah, I, I really like that. It's, it's manageable and repeatable for for average Joe mm -hmm. or Josephine or whatever who has a million things going on, kids <laughs> running around all the time. So last thing I want to address with you is your, um, and I think it's your new book. I don't know. I actually just just got it because... I didn't do good enough research and I just found that you, you guys put out a book on, um, you know, sexuality and things like that. And I was like, I got to get it, but mm -hmm. I didn't get it in time to interview you. So anyway, let me, let me just do a, a you know, a, a cold question here, as far as mm -hmm. discipling kids, preparing them, you know, equipping them to engage the world with the sexual psychosis, that's just baseline normal right now. Um, the yeah. general approach for being able to open up these categories of discussion with your kids and things like that. What what kind of um, what kind of approach are you advocating for or method in terms of how we start these conversations with kids? Yeah, and this actually comes back to the conversation we already had about categories. Um, and this is where it's like a shameless plug that sounds shameless, but I really mean it that um, I th even more so than the first book, I recommend getting the study guide for the second book. And the reason why is because it's not just a, a study guide. We call it discipleship workbook because there's this horrific thing in books called word count where you can't go past a certain thing. And so some of the more explicit examples of how would we address in a real practical way with kids wasn't able to, I mean, because the concept of sexuality is just so hairy and it's knots have knots, which have knots that it just takes so long to like really unpack that, that we didn't get as much to the practical as I would have liked, but we did include that with the discipleship workbook. So that's number one, that we go through a lot of the really practical things. Um, but this also comes back to the, the topic of categories that, um, like, like I talked about earlier, that uh, for learning uh, for kids, there's something called scaffolding. Scaffolding means this is like kind of the thing that I already know. And then when I learn something new, I have to have something to attach it to. Mm -hmm. And so what we have with a lot of things going on with kids is they have categorized something into the wrong category. So I'll give you an example in terms of sex for, uh, for me growing up. Um, just from the media, not necessarily from what I learned in church, but from the media, this was the message I was getting. So when I was younger, it was uh, things that people who are really, really in love do. So if you've ever played the game categories where it's like, or things, you know, that you know, things that are funny, things that start with an R, these are the ideas of getting categories around your kids, hence categories. 
Um, so growing up, it would have been things that um, people who are really in love do. And then maybe a little bit later, 10 years later, it's um, things that people who, who've been dating for a long time do. Then it turned into things that people who are dating do. And then it turned into, if you look at the movies going on right now, things you do the very moment you realize you're both attracted to each other. Like yeah. I cannot count the number of movies where it's like they've been fighting and stuff. And then they kind of start having the softer moment. Then they look at each other and they realize, Oh, I kind of like you and you kind of like me and, and they're on. off to the races, stripping, yeah. uh, stripping off their clothes. That well, and I was told once it's something that adults do like that. That's what it was. It, it was that's it, something that adults do. And I'm just like, there's no guardrails on that at all. Mm -mm. nope that's just as dangerous and like that's what we saw kind of like think of the the whole you know britney spears and jessica simpson time it's that's something you save for um you save your first time for your wedding but basically after that nobody cared how they did it it's like both those girls were not exactly pictures of purity after they got married they were very much into saving that first time and then after that it's like well there's no rules here yeah um so but yeah things that to, to do when you're an adult that the, yeah that would be another example this is a category that people put things into so we need to start switching the categories but we need to introduce those categories to our kids first so the category that i would a couple different categories i would put sex into is number one that things that are so powerful that they need to be guarded hmm. so we we say several times within um I think that first first chapter is uh, sex has the power to or it, we compare it to fire. fire fire has the power to create and it has the ability to destroy the fact that it can do both tells us that we need to be very very careful same thing with sex sex has the ability to, to create but it also has the ability to destroy the fact that it can do both tells us we need to be very very careful so things that are so powerful that they need to be guarded or things that are so valuable that they need to be guarded. So this would be something like, um, you know, art that's behind um, glass or, you know, the powerful things asking your kids, which things need to be guarded more, uh, a candle, a campfire or a nuclear bomb, <laughs> the key to a nuclear bomb. Well, obviously the key to a nuclear bomb probably needs to be the most guarded. Why? Because it's the most powerful. Um, or say like a Chihuahua versus a Golden Retriever versus a uh, Rottweiler that's been taught to fight. Which one really needs to be on the leash the most? Well, that Rottweiler probably because he's the most, uh, he can be the most dangerous. He can be the most powerful. He needs to be the most controlled. Um, there needs to be boundaries around that. Um, and so just creating these categories, things that are powerful, things that... Um, um, that are valuable, which that would go into their bodies later of like your body, you yourself are so valuable that you need to be, you know, you don't need to be out there for everybody to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, or one of my favorite categories that I like that, um, I kind of got through reading a couple of different books was the idea that sex is a married couple repeating their vows in bodily form. Now, this comes from the idea that if um, back in the Old Testament times and even even in uh, recent times within American history, it was understood that um, you were not legally married until you had consummated that marriage. Right. That, that was kind of the second part. I compare it to drawing up a contract versus signing the contract. Drawing up the contract might be the, the things that you say between each other in front of friends and family. And then that signing the contract is what you do with your body. It's reaffirming the agreement that you've already made. Well, so yeah. And I don't want to get start... weird about it, but I mean, anytime you've got a covenant in place, covenant renewal ceremonies mm -hmm. are part of it. I mean, we take communion however often we do it, which, you know, maybe in public is more, uh, more helpfully analogous to like a wedding anniversary and celebrating that. But the, you know, yeah. the, the point is there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So creating a category in your kids' minds of things I do physically that reinforce a promise that was already made. Mm-hmm. That's what sex is. So can you reinforce a promise that you never made? Well, no, I can't. What if you're having sex without making that promise before friends and family? What are you doing? Well, I'm kind of lying because I'm pointing back to a promise that was never made. It doesn't make sense. So this category we get into their minds that 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 actually takes them up to the point of where I've I've heard from several mama bears that they were like, well, I understood saving sex for marriage, but I never understood why it mattered once we were engaged. Mm -hmm. And it was like, but now it makes sense because we had no promise that we could point back to at that point. Right. Um, Right. Well, and and there's also I don't know if you get into this at all, but there's these categories of attraction, which are really confusing Mm -hmm. in the teen years. And our world only has one category for attraction. It's like, you know sex Let, let's go it's sexual it's, and that's it yeah there yeah. was a uh, there was a, a teenage girl in the church and her parents were totally involved in this conversation so we're all we're all talking and, and her big struggle was i really want to spend more time with this friend of mine that's a girl i'm really worried that i'm a homosexual and i yep. it, it, as it turns out in the lord's providence i had just read you know that carl truman book the rise and triumph of the modern self and he introduced yes. that uh that category of like look friendship love is incredibly powerful and for some reason that's been lost and so i got to introduce that idea to the girl and her parents and it was just like oh so this is good it's like yeah man yeah in in this category in this context this is really good go for it Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, we addressed that in chapter seven which is the genderbred curriculum uh which was kind of based on a, a blog series that we did on this curriculum that makes the rounds in like you know k through second grade um, just kind of introducing this idea that not all love is that kind of love and mm-hmm. teaching them going back to, you know, C.S. Lewis's stuff on the four loves, the Storge, Phileo, uh, Eros, and um, what's the, the one for God's love that means agape, agape love, and teaching them what these different types of love are so that they don't get confused that they all have to be Eros love because that's what people think it is right now. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting that. And I've got a whole lot of kids at my house and a bunch of bunch more in the church. So I'm sure we'll be using this as a resource because you've uh, you, you guys, I mean, you and the whole Mama Bear apologetics ministry have proven to be dependable. So thanks for what you're doing for the oh, church and for you. families and all that. Let me just give a shout out here. So Mama Bear apologetics guide to sexuality and that study guide right there. Um, I am I'm ready to I have like I said, guys. For all the listeners out there, I haven't read it yet, but I'm about to. And so I'm recommending that you read it, uh, not from experience, but from confidence. All right. Hillary Morgan Ferrer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for serving the church. You're a real gift to us. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much.